And I say that's one thing that dictatorships are doing. But the main thing that they're actually trying to do is prevent a rival group from lying the way they lie in the opposite direction. What they really fear is some other guy saying, no, I was sent by God. I'm the person sent by God. I speak for, for, the, for the divine. That's what makes uh, dictatorships pee their pants. Welcome to this episode of the Bed and Goods podcast. It's the first one that will be co-hosted. I'm talking to Brian Kaplan, professor of, of economics at George Mason University and author of the recently published book, Labor Econ versus the World. My co-host today is Nathan Young, an amazing forecaster and all-around amazing person. Hi, Nathan and Brian. Uh, love to have you on. How's it going? Great to be here. Yeah, it's a joy. So Brian, um, your new book, Labor Econ versus the World, if I were to summarize it in uh, a few key points, the first one would be that most increases in wages and uh, working conditions are because of productivity and uh, free markets. The second point would be that one of the largest um, restraints we have on on immigration, uh, on, on, on labor markets relate to to immigration and the, uh, removing immigration restrictions would, you know, uh, severely increase everyone's welfare. And the third one would be that a lot of education, particularly on the tertiary side, is signaling that is than skilling. So it doesn't really serve any purpose in making us richer. It, would that be a fair summary of your book? Uh, yes. Uh, on the second one, it's not true to say that more immigration would benefit literally everyone. It would lead to very large improvements. But I try to avoid hyperbole. The truth is all progress inevitably makes some people worse off. It's just that if you focus on that, you wind up in total stagnation. So you should not focus on that. Right. Uh, that's, uh, that's fair. Yeah. So Nathan, uh, what's your first question from Brian? Uh, my first question was going to be, um, so the studies you cite around immigration include Puerto Rican, Mexican, Syrian immigration, but they are much smaller than the kind of open borders you're proposing with perhaps 100 or 1,000 times more people. Surely that's out of sample. It's out of sample in the very modern world, or maybe until Ukraine, actually. <laughs> it may be that since I published the book, it became in sample again. So Poland really has increased its population about 10% in four weeks. Now, I guess it's six weeks, but almost all came in the first four weeks. Um, Israel also, you know, they had more like 10% over the course of maybe eight years. The main thing that you can say is we go back historically, we did have open borders periods, and also we do have open borders within countries, within the European Union, so that's another case. Um, main thing that I say is that we've got, first of all, a lot of evidence within sample, but secondly, there's the question of do we have much reason to think that it would be very different if there was a large increase out of sample? And I say, while we should be open to that idea, I really don't see much reason to think so. Uh, and are there any bets, therefore, you'd be willing to put out to the public based on the Ukraine situation, based on uh, GDP growth or based on uh, bad outcomes that you're pretty certain won't happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's see. I think haven't actually thought about it, but uh, so I don't want to quite put money on the table, but uh, these are the ones that I would be very likely to make. I mean, one is just that you're going to see a very large rise in the GDP of the countries that received a lot of migrants from Ukraine, uh, especially Poland, which has done the most and where the language barrier is the smallest. Uh, secondly, yes, I will 
also pretty confidently predict there's going to be no, no important disruption to the politics of the country. They're not going to fall into civil war because of Ukrainians, anything like that. Let's see. Um, you know, so other ones. When you say a large GDP increase, what, what is that? What's, what's a rough GDP increase yes. that you think it's going to be greater than? Let's see. So it's it's a good question. So I'd have to think about it a little bit more because you know there are two reasons for the GDP increase to be less than normal because you're letting in a lot of women with kids, women would normally have lower product productivity. And especially if you got moms with young kids, that's going to push it down further. Still something like getting a 5% increase in GDP. Although really th the thing that, that's really striking is that I, you know, I would you know, very strongly predict that the GDP of the receiving countries relative, so will rise a lot more than the GDP of Ukraine would have fallen, except there's the war, which throws things off. So we need to go back to what the GDP of the people left was, and then compare that to the increase. So I'll say that the loss to Ukraine will be you know, less than a third of the gain to the receiving countries because the productivity in those receiving countries is so much higher. Great. Uh, and just a quick follow-up then. Um, hopefully we'll write up those suggestions in the show notes. And if somebody wants to follow you up more, they can uh, yeah. they can do that. But do you have any suggestions for a compromise for the US where you could get most of the benefit without much of the loss in terms of that sort of out of sample? Maybe you allow certain numbers of countries or you allow a certain, you know, what would be your, your go-to suggestion of most of the benefit without the risk, you know, in the next five years? Hmm. Let's see. I would, excuse me, the place that I would naturally start would be you know, anyone who's got either a family or employer sponsor can come. And those family or employer sponsors would be responsible for any costs to, you know, for crime, for welfare, for so on. Right. This is one where basically if there's either an employer that wants you or there's a family member that wants you, they can go and post a bond and then they're responsible if something goes wrong. But of course, things usually don't go wrong, uh, which I also would predict would lead to a thriving market in insurance where rather than having to go and pay the whole money, pay the whole money up front, you could just go and get it and buy some insurance. And that would be quite a bit less because, again, the risk is, is actually quite low. Things really going poorly. Um, so that's, I guess, where I would think. See, you know, there's also ones of you know, countries where they just have a severe refugee problem and just saying you know, basically what the EU has done for Ukraine of you know, unlimited numbers can come because it's a desperate situation. And we think that this is not, this is re re really a good thing to do for both for the receivers as well as the senders. Um, Meaningly, I would say you know, one of the main things with Ukraine is it really has stretch even my limits, uh, my, my view of the limits of what's possible in the very short run, just for countries to increase their population by 10% in four weeks. That's pretty much at the upper limit of what I thought was really possible for a country to do. And especially without having people sleeping in the streets, since I was just in Eastern Europe, I can say they're not sleeping in the streets. Uh, <laughs> just not, that's not, not what's happening. You know, people are, are very quickly finding places to stay. So it's just working better than I would have really you know, not better than I would hope because I would hope the maximum, but better than I would have imagined, definitely. Uh, everything you say about immigration seems very sensible to me. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, your first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, explains why such sensible things don't happen, mostly because mm-hmm. politicians follow what voters want, and voters usually don't want the best stuff. They aren't very terrible, but they're kind of mediocre at it. Yeah, Given all of right. this, how would you uh, design... How, what is your uh, best policy solution, either in terms of changing the institutions we have or getting through things through existing institutions to get more of the policies you want and less of the ones you don't want? Right. So there's this basic catch-22 built in where I can propose many institutional changes that I think would lead to much better results, such as having a council of economists who can just veto legislation in the same way the Supreme Court rules laws unconstitutional. You can imagine a panel of economists ruling laws uneconomical. The problem is that there's this catch-22 where in order to change the institution, you'd have to convince people that they're doing a bad job, which is precisely what they don't believe. In terms of what could be done given all of the constraints, that's where I would say that, let's see, Within the, you know, there's, there's the stuff that you can do and then expect to lose the next election. That's quite a lot, actually. <laughs> right. now, for example, there's been a lot of extreme policies that Democrats have adopted during these years, you know, during, you know, during the last year and a half. I think that they are going to really pay for that in November. Didn't stop them from doing it, though. And a lot of the stuff that they adopted is actually going to remain on the books. Uh, so there's the stuff that you can get away with as long as you're willing to lose the next election. And a lot of that will actually endure. Um, so I would say that, you know, for example, just push, you know, pushing in you know, a large increase in the number of refugees you're letting in, for example, that's something where it could very easily get you to lose the next election. But it's not like they are likely to go and deport those refugees afterwards, especially if you, as part of the deal, went and, and gave them piece of paper saying the U.S. government recognizes that you get to stay here for an unlimited time or with an unlimited work or permission to work. See, in terms of other things you can do, I would say that if you just take a look at what's happened to the U.S. states during COVID, where it does seem like, depending upon what the governor of a state wants for COVID policy, that basically happens with very few limits. Um, and even there, what's, you know, what's striking is it does seem like even wildly different policies don't have very big electoral effects there. You know, for, you know, for example, in Florida, DeSantis, he won his last election by a hair, and yet he did some of the most aggressive liberalizations of any governor in the country. And it looks like he, betting markets say that he's very likely to win again. Um, so you know, you know, that kind of thing is doable. Um, in terms of what's doable, you know, you know particular policies, uh, you know, it's, I would say, like, I mean, I need to go through policy by policy. Uh, you know, there's some where most people just don't have much of an opinion, and then I think you've got very wide latitude. There's others where there is a more deep-seated view where it probably is going to hurt you. Um, you know, like, for example, I don't think that there's any way that Biden could have talked the U.S. public into thinking inflation was a good thing. And so that's something where people are going are quite angry and where the Democrats are going to pay for that. It was pretty predictable based upon the macroeconomic policies they pursued. Right, no, fair. Um, in the domestic labor market, right, you, you talk about a lot of um, labor market inefficiencies. What is the most underrated among all of these relative to the attention it, it, it receives in the, in the, in the media? Mm-hmm. Well, the most underrated, obviously, is immigration restrictions. 
since we've been talking about that. Yes, yes. Okay, so not so not counting immigration restrictions. Yep. So probably employment lawsuits are the biggest deal in the United States right now. Uh, This is you know because these are you you know the total amount of uh, you know know, there's the dollar amount, but there's also all the changes that firms are going through in order to avoid lawsuits. And in particular, that probably it probably is true that firms, especially larger ones, want to avoid conspicuously doing anything less than competing firms, which means I think there is a gradual ratcheting up of the response to the threat of lawsuits. And most obviously, discrimination laws are the really big one. Uh, you can see that especially large firms now really are adopting informal quota systems. Uh, which uh, you know is one where you really are you know, hurting the match between the actual actual job of it, actual ability and the jobs that people are getting. It is getting to the point in many industries where just to hire white male, there's extra bureaucratic hurdles, and people feel like, well, we just have to go and allocate a certain share of these jobs to people on the basis of especially race, but also gender to some degree. Uh, this is messing up labor markets because as like I said, it's just making it hard for firms to go and hire the best person for the job. And really it's just putting firms under a constant watch of what is it we're going to do that's going to get us sued next. It also is just reducing the overall quality of work because people are at this point living in fear uh, that they might do or say the wrong thing and then wind up getting fired because their employer is so worried about the uh, legal risk. So yeah, so I would say that probably this is the biggest domestic problem the U.S. has in labor markets right now. The minimum wage, honestly, over the last two years has diminished to almost no importance whatsoever because it has fallen so far below the very lowest wage rate that the that markets would be intersecting at in any state that I know of. Maybe Mississippi, even there, it's not, it just seemed you know, like it was just in Tennessee, historically a low-wage state. Now for very low-skilled jobs, you're talking about $12 an hour. So that's you know, like over 50% above the minimum wage. Just to pull on the, um, the sort of internal quotas question, uh, I got a lot of friends who are female engineers, uh, mm-hmm. or not a lot, a few, uh, and several of them, they're the first engineer in their department who's female. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine that's kind of intimidating. Uh, is it, it, can you see any value in a story of maybe it's good to get the first couple of people of a certain of a certain minority group in the door so they feel comfortable amongst a group who's very different or you know what would your response to a story like that be i'd say the the best way to make people comfortable is just to be friendly and not to start giving them special treatment but something where you might say special treatment makes you feel comfortable but on the other hand also reason for to make you feel uncomfortable like do the other people here resent me you can't just ask them hey do you resent me because what are they going to say there's of course i don't resent you certainly not uh, and then furthermore, what we've really seen with discrimination laws is that this is a case where the slippery, the slippery slope argument is just completely true. And as soon as you bend that rule of hiring the best person for the job, you really do end up on this path of horror where eventually this is, the ma- this is one of the main things that people are thinking about. Um, I am in a university system where this has probably gotten to the very worst position of any industry at all. But now it really is the case where there are multiple brainwashing sessions before you can even hire someone where you have government employees of the school telling you, be fair, stop being a horrible racist. Like very, very, very close to that. That's only a slight caricature of the way that they talk to us. 
And then when it comes down to hiring again, they really are breathing down your neck saying, well, what's explain this? What's going on here? Like, this looks to me like severe racism. And if you actually understood this at the applicant pool, then you would think otherwise. But you know, really, as a professor, of course, I'm inclined to say, like, who are you to possibly second guess me? I am an expert in this field. Who are you? You don't know anything about this field. And yet you go and say that my judgment is incorrect or biased. Could be, but you're not in a position to say it. Uh, what's really struck, struck me over the last two years, though, is seeing that my friends who are nowhere near academic employment, who are in just totally ordinary industries like insurance, now are under the same constraints that we were under five years ago. So this really is spreading to the rest of the world. Honestly, for a long time, my view was these lawsuits aren't that big of a deal. For most people, they're a big deal in a few industries. I happen to be in an industry where I have a lot of firsthand experience with the bad stuff, but that doesn't make it a severe problem for society and the economy. Once I started seeing people with totally normal apolitical jobs dealing with the stuff that I dealt with five years ago, that's where I really did change my mind. Um, this is, uh, Labour Econ vs. the World is a collection of blog posts that you've written. Mm -hmm. uh, what's Essays. your blog writing process? Uh, how long does it take you to write a blog? What do you do? How do you do it? Here's the first thing. I have an enormous queue of ideas. I really have hundreds of things that I have not gotten around to writing yet. Whenever I get an idea, <clears throat> now what I do is I just quickly log into Substack and I write a title for the post. And if I'm worried I'm going to forget the point, then I'll write one sentence, remind myself of what the idea is. And then it's there in my queue. When I am ready to write, I've got this long queue. Sometimes there's something that I really want to write about right away before the inspiration leaves me. And I do that quickly. So things that are high in my queue are more likely to be written. But other times there's something that's been gnawing at me and I, I gotta write it, I gotta write it. And okay, now it's time. Uh, sometimes that's when I just, the other, the more recent ideas just aren't as inspiring. Often there's actually something where I feel like, okay, I finished some big project now, time to go and write the longstanding blog posts that I've known are gonna be more work, but really feel like they need to be said. Uh, usually I will just work on the blog in the morning and just try to get something done. I try to stay a few days ahead. You know, lately, when I've been traveling, I'll often go and try to get far ahead. It's just easier to go and work on the blog when I'm traveling than work on a longer term project. So there's that. Uh, also, honestly, a lot of it has to do with what we're talking about at lunch with George Mason. So if we're having a lunch argument, that's where I'm most likely to feel like, well, the lunch did not adequately solve this problem. So I'm going to write something and this will settle the issue for all time. Not really, but um, for me, if there's something that's gnawing at me, I may have trouble concentrating on other things until I get it down. So there's something that really is bugging me. Most notably, if there's, I read criticism of me to the point where I feel the need to respond, then it's very hard for me to get anything else done until I do it. I'm just sitting there having an insane debate with myself in my head saying, and furthermore, furthermore, um, and, and you're just draft and post. You're like, yes. you're, just, you're just write it up and then you'll send it or you have someone else look See, at it? Or? Um, no, I they almost never have anyone else look at it. I do proofread it once and then normally right before it goes up, I proofread it again. When for, Usually the feedback I get from friends is uh, this typo that you totally missed. Uh, whoops. I've been trying to improve on that, but that's a bit hard. Uh, uh, you know, like more often it's I, I've talked about the stuff with my friends before. Um, you know, sometimes I mention I'm thinking of writing it. Well, more often, actually, I'm talking about it. And as I'm talking, I realize, oh, I should write this up, especially if at the end of lunch, I feel like 
it, I'm not satisfied with my own performance, that's where I say, okay, well, I'll write it up and then I'll be a better version of me than I was at lunch. And let's say we had to get twice as much input out of you. You know, you're not allowed to become sadder. You have to be the same level of happiness. We want twice as much blogs. We want books twice as often. What are we going to do to do that? Hmm. Let's see. I guess if you took my kids away from me. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not allowed oh, to make you sadder. Okay. okay. We can only like, mm. we can only put more productivity yeah. into the problem. Double Maybe production. it's impossible. I mean, so you could get double production for a period. Okay. The problem is that you know, like, if you were to just increase my, per, my, my income by a lot, that wouldn't suffice because this is, you know, like, you know, just to explain ba- basic labor econ, there's something called the income effect and the substitution effect. This says that, when you raise someone's wage, on the one hand, this does make working more attractive relative to other things. On the other hand, when you raise their wage, you also make them richer. Richer people buy more things they enjoy, including their own time. Um, it is possible for the net effect of these two things to go either way. So, uh, yes, it is actually very possible for one individual's labor supply curve to have a negative slope, contrary to the usual way that we draw them in textbooks. And I would say for where I am, I am actually, at least in the medium to long run, at at least, you know, I'm, I'm not at a very positive slope anyway. I'm not sure whether my labor supply curve is has a little bit positive vertical or a little negative, but just paying me more in the long run would not raise my productivity much, I don't think. You could shift me around in time. So you could say, like, I really want more this month, and then I would work more that month if you paid me more that month. You could shift around what I was doing. Like if you said, hey, I, I just love getting posts on demagoguery, I, I would go and give you money to go and do that. Or if you were to say, I really love the graphic novels, I'll give you more money for that. Right. So actually, the graphic novels are something to expect more of because I do have a, well, I have a deal with the Cato Institute to do one more. And then our understanding is if donors like it, then there will be a whole library of them. So that's definitely something where the incentives are shifting around the composition of what I'm doing. But in terms of total hours, uh, probably not too much. I, honestly, the thing that is most likely to increase the total amount of work that I do would be if the people around me that I see every day were just a lot more enthusiastic. <laughs> so if I had people coming into my office every day in person and saying, I just love that thing. If only there were more, please, please. I love it so much. That's the kind of thing that would be motivating for me. I think that might actually get me to do more per hour because I would just be more pumped up by that. Um, so I'm just hearing more more compliments on Twitter. That's 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 what we need to have. Twitter compliments are you go. So honestly, normally I don't read the comments on on Twitter, but for me, there's a world of difference between the in-person compliment from the person I'm seeing every day and everything else. Okay, so we've, got, just, to, we've yes. got to pay your colleagues. That's, that's yeah, what yeah, I mean. yeah. You got to pay my you know, pay my colleagues to butter me up for. Yeah, so yeah, I'm not above that sort of thing. You know, like I'm, like I'm, I'm. Do I'm you not just want to quickly? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not made of stone. I like I don't want people to lie to me. But well, effusive praise does make me feel good. I'll, Do I, you want to give a, like a, a single minute on the other graphic novels you're writing? Uh, yes. Uh, so the the, uh, the the next one in the queue, which is. Basically done on my end, but the artist is still uh, slugging away on it, is called uh, Build Baby Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing Regulation. This is one on what I consider the second worst set of economic policies that we see in most rich countries after immigration, which is the strangling of the housing market. Strangling is not hyperbole. Once you come to understand what's going on, I think it is actually realistic to say that if the 
labor market, or rather, rather, if housing regulation in the U.S. did not exist, that the price of housing would be currently at about half of what it is for the overall country. And then in some parts of the country, I think it could be as low as 10% of what it is, such as San Francisco. I think it really might fall 90% in the long run with deregulation or would just be at 10% of where it is if the regulation had never existed in the first place. A lot of what I do in that book is go over the different kinds of regulation. We've got regulation of building heights, regulation of multifamily housing, regulation of the minimum lot size, regulation of parking. All of these things add up to an enormous tax on building almost anything in almost any part of the country people actually want to live. It's not hard to go and build a house in the middle of nowhere. You could probably build a skyscraper out in rural Kansas somewhere without too much trouble, but who wants to build a skyscraper in rural Kansas? The whole point of a skyscraper is to put it in a place where the real estate values are high. Right. Uh, and then uh, my favorite part of the book is in chapter three, I, uh, it's called the panacea policy. And this is where I argue that not only would deregulating housing make housing a lot more affordable, but would also make a large dent in a long list of other problems that people are complaining about all the time, it would make a large dent in inequality, large dent in economic mobility. It would have big environmental benefits, improve fertility, reduce crime. Right. So I just go through all of these things. So it really is something where we can, if not kill, then at least wound a whole bunch of birds with one stone, right? <laughs> or flipping it around, we can go and greatly reduce a bunch of problems that people right now are taking as awful indictments of our society that can only be solved with some kind of radical expansion of government. I'm saying, look, we don't need radical expansion of government. We need a targeted reduction of government in government's role in housing. You know, uh, relative to what a, a text-only open borders book would look like, what do you think, uh, what was the percentage or the absolute increase in eyeballs you mm -hmm. got because of the graphic novel? I think it was probably about tenfold. Okay, so... Right, uh, so the sales of open borders were not 10 times the sales of the other books. But I have a lot of anecdotal evidence that not only are people more likely to actually finish up in borders, so they don't just buy it, they actually read the whole thing. But furthermore, I have a lot of, you know, you know, you know many, many more stories of, of a book being read by a large number of people. Most often for open borders, people, I, I've heard of many entire families where it gets read by every member of the family. I've never heard about that for any of my other books. The book gets passed around to every family member. It just has much wide, wider reach. It yeah, is my anecdotally. Like I I keep giving away my copy. I think I don't have a copy in the house at the moment. So anecdotally, <laughs> yeah. I can at least yeah. say, yeah, I right. Could. So you know, like, like in, ter in terms of total sales, it's maybe at double the sales of the second best-selling book. But in terms of eyeballs, I think that I've got a multiple of that because it's just so much more appealing and you know, not only a you know, much more entertaining to read and it's, it's again there's there's just a much greater contagion effect people see someone reading this book what is that and like can i see that and like you don't get that for, for regular textbooks no uh, i will confess that i've tried to make several people read the myth of the rational water but mm -hmm. i but i need to work on my persuasion strategy mm -hmm. more <laughs> Yeah. I mean, for open borders, yeah, I just heard a, uh, like a really, like, I've, been, I've heard so many stories about people sharing open borders. This one was totally new. Saturday night, uh, some, you know, some, a guy told me that he gave the brother to his little brother in ninth grade, and the little brother then read it over the phone to some girls. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> Great. All right. All That's right. fantastic. <laughs> I mean, a little puzzled by reading a graphic novel over the phone and how you even do that, but you know, ninth graders are you are using it to you had it here first, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want to improve your romantic <laughs> Ninth graders are, use, are using it for at least possible pre-dating purposes. Exceptional. I've never no. heard anything like that for anything else I've written. <laughs> uh, two questions you can ask together. Would you write a graphic novel for Myth the Rational Voter against Case Against Education? Those. And second of all, why aren't your GMU colleagues writing graphic novels? <laughs> yeah, so would I do it for the other ones? I mean, I've definitely thought about it. The marginal cost is obviously quite a bit lower than doing a totally new one, but I feel like there's enough other you know, new topics that, I, that would be more interesting to do. So I would tend to be more inclined to just do a totally new one. The work on graphic novels you know, is lower on my end. When you add in the work of the artist, of course, that is a very big increase. In terms of why other colleagues aren't doing it, you know, I think you know just to just to be in you know, to be able to do it well. I think you do have to be a fan of the genre. So I was a big consumer of graphic novels for about fifteen years before I tried going and doing something like this. I don't think any of my other colleagues have the same kind of passion for it. I mean, we have actually seen other cases of economists going and doing graphic novels, and I will just say didn't do a very good job, didn't really make use of the medium. I'm thinking of Jonathan Gruber of MIT did a graphic novel on Obamacare. Uh, he's a very smart guy, but it's just not a good book. It's not a good so graphic novel. What I'm um, hearing is that GMU needs a graphic designer who loves graphic novels <laughs> to kind of come in and then... No, I think GMU see, actually see needs yeah. good good AI to make graphic novels. Ah, you need good AI. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if you've heard about the AI illustration software Dolly, yep. Yep. if it really worked like they were saying, this would could easily triple my productivity as a graphic novelist. Uh, however, despite what we've seen on Twitter, I have gotten a chance to use it and it does not work anywhere nearly as well as the people on Twitter would have you believe. We'll, we'll just get more emergent ventures grantees to work on this. Give it five years. and then yeah, we'll yeah, maybe, it. Maybe, in maybe in 10 years, it will be that good. I think it's you know, maybe more like 20 years. Um, I hope that it's, you know, you know so again, basically the advertising for it is you write anything you want in natural language and then Dolly spits out a great version of it. That's no, I tried it for a whole bunch of things through a friend of mine who remained nameless because I don't want him to lose access to it. But uh, I went and tried a number of things and it just was ridiculous. It was nothing like what I wanted. I had to get it. I did to get it down to something ultra simple before it could do it. So there's been some discussion on Twitter as to whether it's going to put illustrators out of business. Yeah, no I'm way. hearing yeah. no way. And you might be willing to bet on that number of illustrators. Yeah, yeah I'll, you know, I'll bet, on, bet on that for the current version. It will not lead to any significant decline in employment of illustrators. If you just want to have a really simple thing, like you want to have you know, Nathan Young drawn with fur all over him or something, I could probably do that. Actually, no, it won't let you do that because it won't let you do any non, any, any, it won't let you do anyone who is not crazy famous. Like I, yeah, so it won't, I, I tried giving it some, some well-known economists and it just spit it back as a violation. Uh, so, but if you do, I, you know, like just do like Einstein is a werewolf, maybe you could do that. But if you want to, but the examples they're giving you, like the famous one of, oh, it's a, a rabbit detective sitting on a park bench, reading a newspaper in a Victorian setting. Like I tried things like that and got, not, you know, it wasn't even close. It was just gibberish. It was the illustration equivalent of gibberish. 
Uh, yeah, so I will predict no significant decline of illustrators in the next, uh, in, in the, you know, like, like, you know, like until at least there's another version of Dolly that comes out, I'll put it that way. Uh, do you see, do you see some similarities between your arguments around uh, immigrants and the sort of like AI tools in that actually what will happen is the native population will become users of the tools mm-hmm. and that maybe more jobs will be created yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So AI is no different from any other labor-saving technology that we've seen throughout history. What we see there is, you know, there are two scenarios. One, sometimes there are technologies that actually create a lot of new jobs, like computers. Right? There are way more jobs in computer-relevant fields than there were in the past, because you know, in 1950, the, were just, the computers were so expensive and so limited, there wasn't much point in hiring people to program them or to perform service on them or anything else. Uh, there are plenty of other industries where progress does lead to large falls in employment, agriculture most famously. The key thing to remember is that there's always something else for humans to do. Always has been. People always say this time is different. They've always been wrong in the past. Doesn't prove that they will always be wrong, but it is an overwhelming reason to be skeptical. Right? There's every reason to think that whenever we have a new technology, what happens is fine. Worst case scenario is this greatly reduces employment there, and then we find something else for people to do. The something else verbiage is always super dissatisfying. It just seems like you're waving your hands and trying to deny harsh realities, and yet it has always been the correct answer. And the, the main reason why it's dissatisfying is until you actually have a need to find new things for people to do, people don't spend much time thinking about it. Remember, business is not philosophy. Businessmen don't sit around thinking about hypothetical questions. What would I do with workers if I no longer needed illustrators? If that's not the kind of thing a person in business works, work, worries about, they worry about what opportunities exist right now, what ones are likely to be happening in the next year or two. Just flights to fancy about managing hypothetical worlds is not what people in business do. But when hypothetical becomes reality, they get on the job and they figure out amazing stuff that professors would never have been useful for, right? I mean, imagine in 1840 explaining what factories are capable of doing, and then and we're actually a bit of mechanization of agriculture in 1840. Imagine explaining this to people then, and they say, well, what about all the people who lose their jobs? And you say, oh, don't worry, they'll do something else. Like, imagine how dissatisfying that would have been. You know, any sober person would have said, people are going to do something else, the thing that has absorbed 99% of human labor for the last 10,000 years? What? What specifically? And you couldn't have told them, you know, oh, there'll be some kind of industrial revolution. Like that would sound fanciful. And then, and then an information revolution a hundred years from now, a hundred years after that, 150 years after that, you know, yeah. all of this would have just seemed like a, like a bad actually quite surprised that most people's answers aren't whatever they have a comparative advantages. So <laughs> if like Dali 2 is, uh, is like 10,000 times better than me at recording podcasts, but only five times better than me at writing blog posts, I'll just mm-hmm. go write blog posts instead. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. such a simple example of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how this of, of, of how this is going to work, but it's never, mm-hmm. the intuitions of people never draw from trade to this. <laughs> I think people's idea on AI is it's different from every other technology because it, it's software and so you can copy it at near zero cost. So the idea that people have in their minds at least is that there'll just be an infinite number of AIs so no matter how good or bad they are at anything, there'll be an infinite number and they will take over everything. Again, this is totally wrong. So the AI has to operate on some hardware just to start. <laughs> and then, like the, again, the, the idea that AI will get an absolute advantage, an absolute advantage in everything, that's pretty crazy too. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, so honestly, I mean, here's the thing. I wish that Dolly were already as great as people say, because it would make my life so much better and would lead to a great renaissance. Yeah. I'd probably be sad for a bunch of professional illustrators who would have to find something else to do with their lives. But as I explain in, you know, Open Borders and also Labor Econ versus the World, the secret of mass production is, uh, uh, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. Rich societies are ones that produce a lot of stuff. And when you focus on what's going to happen to people that lose as a result of progress, the result is you get a stagnant society. Um, I, I've, I've read case against education uh, in great detail. I've read labor econ against the world in great detail. But I also read a lot of uh, growth macroeconomics. And one of the strongest results there is Manke, Romer, and David Wallace's paper, uh, which, which, which basically says that once you account for hum- for the years of of of, of uh, education, right? Your uh, the the amount by which you can you know, to, to oversimplify the amount by which you can predict uh, the difference in the levels of GDP per capita increases by something like twenty percent. So you know the the thing is uh, le- the levels of human capital as measured by years of 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 uh, education probably does have a large effect on GDP per capita. And you see that in Singapore, in South Korea, and uh, and in Taiwan, you know, TSMC keeps complaining, and probably semiconductors is an example, but the TSMC big boss uh, keeps complaining that in the US, he can't find enough people who know um, semiconductor manufacturing. So what do you think of uh, the your, uh, results in case against education in the context of the Mankiv Romerweil paper? When I started writing The Case Against Education, I felt like I was really going to have to grapple with that literature. Mm-hmm. And what I expected to say was reverse causation. It's not that rich countries have a, or it's not that, not that having, you know, having a lot of education makes countries rich, rather it's being rich that gets you to have a lot of education. However, once I actually read the empirical literature, I discovered I really had very little to explain because that paper you're talking about is a total outlier. It's an early one. And the research consensus out of the large majority of people working after them is that they had a lot of trouble finding much effective education on GDP. Right now, in fact, you know, so the main thing that happened was a bunch of people said, look, this is terrible. This is a puzzle. We can't find the effect. What are we doing wrong? This became the research consensus by the late 90s, early 2000s. There's a famous paper by Lant Pritchett called Where's All the Education Gone that got a lot of this going. This one came after the Mancu paper where he said, well, look, if we actually get better data, we don't see any of this stuff. What are you talking about? And a lot of other people who really wanted to find effective education just struggled and couldn't. Insofar as they did find it, I would still say reverse causation is something that you really need to think about. There is another really good paper by Mark Bills and a co-author that I reference on reverse causation. So yeah, I would say actually the... Average macroeconomic result is that a year of education does as much for a country's GDP as five years of education do for an individual's income. Or in other words, that education seems to be only about 20% as effective for at the national level as at the individual level, which I then say just coincidentally happens to fit exactly with my view of something like 80% signaling 20% human capital. I lost you a bit after Pritchett because of my uh, internet. So just to clarify, it, 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 you're, you're basically saying that uh, Land Pritchett and the rest of the consensus says mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not very good. It's, it's probably 20% as much worth as the, as uh, to a country as it is to an individual. Yes. Which means right, it's right. So, 80% useless. <laughs> yeah, 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 which is exactly, exactly what I've been saying uh, in, in my book. 
So, I mean, like I said, I did expect that the research consensus was going to be what you said. Mm -hmm. That was the impression that I was given in graduate school. Mm -hmm. But when I got up to date with all of the main papers on the effect of education on GDP, that's when I discovered, oh, wow, actually, this is just going to be a lot easier for me intellectually than I thought it was going to be because they themselves admit that they can't find much an effect. The only difference between the typical researcher and me is I said, well, that's what we should expect. So what's the big deal? And they, on the other hand, are saying there's something wrong. What's wrong? How can we We got to reduce, redo this in order to get the right answer that we all know to be true, which is that education is great for growth. In terms of Singapore or South Korea, those are extreme outliers as long as you're measuring it by mere years of education. The, where those countries look really good is on test scores, mm -hmm. not years of education. And as uh, Eric Hanyashak shows, actually, that there's a world of difference between merely sitting in a classroom and having good national test scores. He wants to interpret this as what you countries really need to do to get growth is to get their math and science scores up really high, like Singapore and South Korea, and then everything will be great. I'm skeptical about that as well, mm -hmm. because say, look, most jobs use little math and almost no science. Mm -hmm. So how could just improving math and science lead to this uh, a dramatic change in GDP across the board? But that's my fairly view, easy my view to, is that to would, answer. Oh, sorry? That's, that? fairly, that's fairly easy to answer, right? Uh, getting better at, 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 at math and science means that, you know, a small percentage of your population gets into these very, very high productive industries, Singapore with what is then semiconductors, Taiwan now, India to a smaller extent with um, uh, IT outsourcing and computer programming. And, and, you know, that drives a majority of your growth. It's okay if cashers don't need to know math and science. You just need to ensure that that you get the top five percentile of people to be very, very good. See, that's not Hanyashek's result. Yeah. Hanyashek's result, right? result is you want to have great math and science scores for the entire country. Uh, he does consider that maybe it's just the top accounts. And then he says, no, no, it looks like maybe there's some extra bonus if the top's really good, mm -hmm. but that's not his story, actually. His story is you want to have it for the whole country, which I say like, just does not make sense. I say the best reading of Hanyashek results is that these high math and science scores actually capture high national intelligence. And intelligence, unlike math and science, is something that does matter for all jobs. Right. And furthermore, while it is, you know, it is, it is not the case that intelligence is written in stone, but it is the case that it's just much higher to raise intelligence than just to raise scores on some specific academic skills. So he does not, you know, Hanyashek talks as if he's got the magic bullet for national development, just full blown get math and science up through the roof. And I say, no, like to get what you want, you really need to get intelligence through the roof. And while there are some ways of nudging that, we don't know any way to get that through the roof. One of the things I like about your disagree, but things you, you disagree on with other people is that you're willing to put uh, actual predictions and in some cases actual money on it so nathan has a bunch of bets he you know he he he, he wanted you to, to talk about whether you'd be willing to, yeah. to take yeah, sure. sure so i i like to have a, you know, at least a day or two to mull whether whether yes but uh, so i'm not going to say yes or no right on right over right over the podcast but definitely email them to me i will take you seriously and tell you you know like often someone offers me a bet and i'll say well i agree with your side of the bet so we don't really have a bet here well, uh, I'll read them out now, and you can just give your opinion on them. But okay, no, no all card. right, sure. The, 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 the You'll card. give us credit card numbers over the over the phone, but no. <laughs> um, I've, I've decided we should call this session. This is the Brendan Goods podcast. This should be the bet on goods section. All right. Great. Um, okay, so you've previously expressed some sort of doubts around existential risk concerns. Mm -hmm. So 
I would offer 20% that there's fewer than 100 humans like in the galaxy and no human simulated humans anywhere by 2100. So 20% chance that happens. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I is that, that like, bet. is that, yeah. you want that bet? So in oh, a yeah. sort of similar to Yudkowsky, you know, you pay $100 now, yes. I pay, I don't know, 125 with CPI in 2100 to your, you know, your descendants who I've met, they're a credit yes. to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like as long as long as we could solve the uh, you know the credibility problem, of how do we make sure that my descendants actually get paid? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and do you do you have a sense of where you'd stop? Were you willing to take that bet? I mean, this is just this yeah. is just this is information you don't need to give yeah, me, just, but I'm curious. There's definitely stopping short of marital conflict. I don't think my wife would go for me giving you a hundred thousand dollars in order. No, to no, not in terms of yeah. in value, in terms yeah. of in terms of percentage. You know, twenty percent is too high. How low would you go? Even one percent. Even one percent, even one percent, less, less than less than hundred humans in the galaxy. Yeah, that's that seems crazy to me. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, another point, one. Yeah, I mean, like, like I like that's one. I, I think I'd act, look. Here's the thing: is I think the greatest existential existential risk is is full blown nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And that one, everyone I've talked to says now, like they, they could kill half of humanity, maybe ninety percent. No way it's going to get rid of the last. I think probably even ninety nine point even nine. I mean, the eighty thousand hours podcast on that seems yeah. to say that you really, you really have to get the human population down below like a yeah. thousand or so. You know, like, like, if you get it down too low, then we lose our capacity to make new nuclear weapons. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the problem kind of solves itself. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, another question. Uh, simil- similarly, for a while. <laughs> More specifically on AI safety, um, I, I'd offer 60% that in 20 years' time, you'd consider it to be either a top concern or that you previously underrated it. Maybe the risk has already passed. Uh, would, you, would you take that 60% that in 20 years' time, you, 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 can, you can be the resolver, yes. but you'll say, hey, uh, I was wrong, I underrated this concern, or this okay, is right now. Yeah, I'll put it in the top 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Top, anything so, you consider top concern. So top 10. Any, Let's see. I mean, I need to go through the list of what the other ten would be. But yeah, I would take yeah, I would take sixty percent that I you know, that, you know, that I that I will not put AI in the top ten risks in uh, you know in, in the next what do you say twenty years? Again, the only the only thing I would just exclude we don't count it if human beings program an AI to go and kill some other humans. Right. Uh, yeah. Count, yeah. No, no, no. It's got to be AI turning on us or like doing something that the creators didn't want. Not the not like us saying let's saying let's create some drones to go and massacre some people. And well, yeah, we're AI talking about yeah. we're talking about extinction, not yeah. not like yes, you know, war. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Concerning. Yeah, yeah. Wrong. Not, not um, worried, yeah. So yeah, I mean, even, even there, like if the you know, like you know, Terminator scenario, the AIs launch all our nukes against each other. It's not going to drive us to extinction. Uh, so yeah, I'm not worried about that. Not 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 at sixty percent. Not at one percent. Not at. Are there are there any sort of areas of questions that you'd like to get bets on that you haven't? I mean, it seems like you're not like you're not necessarily like massively proactive, but people come to you, yeah. so you've got like a, a broad range. Are there some areas that you'd like to call people out and say, hey, you know, I think there's some good bets that I'd be willing to take in this area. I mean, all those tail risk and out of sample complaints people have about immigration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those those I'd really be happy to. I've tried betting people on things like civil war, and then it turns out that their definition of civil war is equivalent to we're already in a civil war because there were like a hundred murders by immigrants in Europe. You know, so just using words in a bizarre way. So I'm used. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't set the numbers because I don't understand the issue well enough. But I'm used on a question like uh, if you know, let's say if greater than five percent of people per year immigrate to 
any uh, developed nation, yeah. there will be no civil wars yes. and there will be yeah. immigration, there will be GDP above this level. Is that yeah, the yeah, sort of bet yeah. that you'd be willing to take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Def def definitely really, really like to do that one. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Other ones. I'd actually, I'd be, you know, if we could come up with some good measure of Muslim fundamentalism, I would be very happy to make a bet on the upper bound of the Muslim fundamentalist share of Western Europe or the, or, or the EU as okay. um, for dates. Um, so you know, my view is actually is that you know, the you know, Muslim immigrants are getting assimilated to a high degree. It's just that people don't want to count it and they want to go and use a few outliers as some kind of proof that things are going the opposite direction. Okay. My understanding of British data, for example, is there's actually a very high rate of apostasy of people who are born Leaving Muslim. Yes. Um, oh. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Just you know, just, just saying, I'm no, I'm no longer Muslim, and then saying, look, if you know, if 25% by adults say they aren't even they don't even belong to the religion, what percent have actually secularized to a high degree? I think that's pretty high. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would be I'd be very happy to do that. A very different happy. one I have for you is uh, in hundred years, what are the odds you think that psych that mainstream psychiatry will accept your view of mental illness? <laughs> yeah, that's like. I don't know. I'm more worried about the AIs than hopeful about that. <laughs> no, I mean, like, like, you know, like their whole, like, you know, look, well, here's the thing. I, I have actually met, you know, like, you know, like, you know, a number of psychologists or psychiatrists who will say, all right, fine. Well, this language of, of illness or disease is not really very good and it's kind of misleading, but we should still keep doing what we're doing. So in, like, uh, you, you, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of like a purely intellectual sense of, yeah, all right. Like they're, they're not really sick. They're just weird and they piss off their family members and we're going to go and drug them and lock them up because that makes life easier for people. And also it's better for them in some sense, not with their own preferences, but right. trust me, I, I have encountered that. Okay. But to actually just say that we're going to make psychiatry voluntary for everybody and that they don't really have diseases and it's okay to say, hey, I'm not going to hire you because your behavior is bad and it's not okay for you to just say, hey, I have ADHD, I have ADHD so you have to keep hiring me. Yeah. Um, a question I, Nathan and I got from Twitter was that if you think that people with ADHD have a preference for struggling at completing uh, tasks or short-term memory and attention, do you also think that, that, that people with low IQs have a preference for struggling mm -hmm. with, with, with comprehension and, 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 and abstractions and reasoning? Yeah, I don't say that people with ADHD have a preference for struggling. I say mm -hmm. is, that they, is that they don't enjoy... You know, they, they, you know, they don't enjoy things that almost everyone considers boring and they, they, you know, they, they dislike them more than most people, right? So that's different from they actually want to dislike them. Mm -hmm. I think you know, most people who find work really boring, you know, if they could take a pill that would make them have a different preference, they would, it would make their lives easier. Same goes for, for, for people that are perfectly normal, right? Yeah, if I could have a pill that would make me much more enthusiastic about my work, that'd be great. It doesn't show that my current way of being is diseased. Mm -hmm. um, Let's see. So, but any, anyway, uh, see. Or, 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 sorry, sorry. What? What? what, what I, I think. I think I, I missed the thrust. And then the question. other half was then. Yeah. Would people who have low IQs? Would they oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The low IQs. An equivalent. So, yeah. sort of... so, so this is where, in my original paper on the economics of mental illness, I actually say, look, first of all, it's not immediately obvious what is a constraint and what is a preference. Say so. How can we go and address this? Well, there's intuition or introspection. And I don't put that at zero, but I actually do propose a specific testable way of getting around this. I call this the gun to the head test. And it comes down to this. If you lead, if you dramatically change someone's incentives, does this lead to a dramatic change in the, uh, in, in the result? 
right? And for IQ, we have this. We actually do have incentivized IQ tests. This has been done. There's a research literature on incentivized IQ tests, which says that you do get a modest improvement in IQ at the bottom of the distribution when you, when you give monetary incentives. Uh, so what I'll say is that this makes me think that actually, like out of people who like who test with low IQ, some modest share of that is actually due to them not trying, and they are and they are actually smarter than they test. Uh, however, okay. yeah, 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 but, yeah, but for most people, however, giving them very giving them very strong financial incentives does not improve their IQ score, and that's where I'll say it's not just a choice; it's something that is actually a constraint. They really can't help it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we've got great evidence. That even things as simple as a liquor tax reduce, reduces alcohol consumption and not just of marginal drinkers, of actual full-blown alcoholics. We've got studies of heroin use showing heroin users are responsive to price. So to say, oh, I just have to use this amount of heroin is just not true and demonstrably so because by changing their incentives, we change their behavior, which shows that different behavior was in their choice set all along. Um, you cite a lot of these very interesting experiments. And I know GMU has a strong tradition of experimental economics. So uh, have you considered doing this yourself, being the next v Vernon Smith? <laughs> no, I've never considered being the, the, the next Vernon Smith. I'd be open if I had a colleague who was already an experimentalist who mm -hmm. said, hey, let's work together and you give me the ideas and I'll do the actual experiment experimentation. Mm -hmm. uh, no one's ever given me that offer, so I haven't had to say no to it. Right. Um, essentially, you know, doing experiments, so, you know, like it's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, of skills that's involved in knowing how to do it that I don't have. It's mm -hmm. learning by doing. Uh, so, I mean, I would say probably it's not worth me learning unless I wanted to do a whole bunch of them. And I don't have a whole bunch of such ideas that are in my queue. Um, I'd say the thing that's closest to doing experiments that I've ever done is I made my own data set for my paper on the you know, on systematically biased beliefs about uh, political responsibility. And I will say that that was a sufficiently aggravating experience just collecting my own data set that I don't ever want to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and right. I, I expect that running my own experiments will also be highly aggravating. <laughs> so basically, if we, if we want to answer your questions the best, we should make it like 20 times easier to run economics experiments. That'd be yeah, a or, you know, like, like, it, like, I mean, my favorite would be, again, if there was someone that was enthusiastic about my work who said they want to run experiments on it, and they said, you'll just go and sort of super and tell me whether I'm whether I'm testing your ideas properly and I do all the other work. That sounds pretty sweet. Mm. Uh, no, I I always believe changing constraints works better than changing preferences. So I, so, so I don't want to wait for someone to be enthusiastic. So, yes, uh, if there's if there's any experimental economists listening, listening to this, uh, working on this is a, is a great thing because all the debates me and my friends have would be solved by it. So <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Um, I get the sense we're wrapping up, though, Prajit, mm. you can tell me if that's not the case. But yeah, maybe yeah. a kind of like a finishing question might be, um, Brian, if, if you get given half a million, five million and uh, 500 million with strings attached, with mm. no strings attached, mm. what do you do with those kinds of sums of money? You, mm. you know, right, uh, as, as, as a philanthropist or just for my I can do really anything that I want with it. Uh, let, let's say softly as a, let, let's say as a, as a philanthropist, though, I, yes. I might argue that some of your work right. is philanthropic in its nature, mm -hmm. but yeah, yes. so, yes. so 5 million, mm -hmm. sorry, half a million, 5 million, 500 million. Hmm. Let's see for the 500,000. I'm like, my, my first instinct is definitely just to go to give well and say, what are your top charities right now? And do that. Although probably in the end, I would say. Yeah, but this is this great chance to go and create my whole library of 
nonfiction graphic novels. Uh, and so I think I would be more inclined to do that. You know, like not like if someone were to say, is this really like a great, you know, like the, the better version of effective altruism? And I'd say, eh, probably not. But since I'm the one deciding how to use this money, I'm not going to be an effective altruist. I'm going to do it for something that I think is something that I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about. Plus, I think it has some small chance of doing some great good. Five million. Hmm. Five million. That's where you know, my first step would just actually be, honestly just be to go to the community and just say, I've got this money. What, what, what do you advise? Um, you know, that's one where I don't think I would need anything like five million to go and do my dream project with graphic novels or anything like that. So I don't have any other philanthropic project that I want to be have my hands on. So I'd be more inclined just to go and give that to what are currently the top rated EA charities. Uh, for but 500 million. Uh, yeah. If you were to give it to the top eight EA charities, a lot of that would go to things like X-Risk and, and AI safety. But you, and it is, So those those are not the top giveable charities by any means. Uh, top giveable charities are malaria right. net, so, warming, and... Top and giveable charities, also, but not yeah, top exactly. AI charities. Yeah. Okay, or, uh, so, uh, top EA. But have you heard of uh, this thing called Malengo? No, I don't think so. It's this uh, nonprofit that basically gets uh, kids in. I, f- I forgot which country in 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 Africa, but but it says that you know the barriers to to getting a degree in Germany are just you got to know German and the degree is essentially free and you can pay for a lot of your costs by working a part-time job. So they get mm-hmm. kids from these very very poor. Th- I, I think in Uganda, right? They they, they yeah, tell them Nigeria. Yeah, I think it's one of the two. Yeah, it's they pay their uh, flight fees and, and and they say you know you can make up the the cost by by working normal part time jobs as as cashiers and, and go to any normal degree in, in a German university, right? Mm-hmm. And the returns to that are like on like five digits in in the percentage. Mm-hmm. It's like thirty thousand percent. And I th- I th- I, th- I thought yeah, you know that has that be- made it onto GiveWell's list yet? I, I'm not sure who's funded them or who's not. I, I think the consensus that you do, they, they can't scale very well, although I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to some people in the Czech Republic saying that if you can get in as a foreign student, then you're allowed to work without any limitation as long hmm. as you're a student. Uh, so while on one hand I'm torn because I think the education itself is probably pretty wasteful, but as a backdoor to letting someone be able to work in the EU, that's pretty good. Uh, for 500 million, that's where I think I would actually try to hire some international law experts and just say, like, like find me the best loopholes for getting people from the third world into the first world, right? And then once we know what those are, let's go and try to max those out. Interesting. Uh, how I mean, you're EA-ish, and like I'm also a lot EA-ish, and Nathan's mm-hmm. probably the strongest here. Uh, mm-hmm. EA is just starting to build its labor market, like in a, in a, in a very broad sense. What norms, what what rules should they adopt to ensure the most efficient allocation? Because you're, it's not a normal market. It's, you're you're dealing with people who are on the right tail of several things, and you know it's very hard to sort them. Right. I think my honest answer, which seems a little bit snarky, but this is really what's in my mind, is. You know, Turn down the sci-fi di- the sci-fi dial as much as possible. Turn up the cost-benefit an- analysis dial as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, like, there is a strange connection between having a youthful love of sci-fi and taking these, to me, super implausible AI risks really seriously. You can say it's AI open to your mind to the possibilities, 
<laughs> if, it, if it was reading fantasy novels, open your mind to some new possibilities. I think we would all say, uh, fantasy novels don't really tell you about the threat of Dark Lord. So uh, it's just a certain kind of personality gets sucked in by that worldview. And honestly, like to me, sci-fi is really just fan- sci-fi novels are sci-fi fiction. It's fantasy fiction with slightly different mechanics. It's not really something that gives us insight into the future of humanity. I have a, you know, my general rule of thumb is any kind of unusual technology that people have been writing about in myths for thousands of years, that is a reason just to be very skeptical of it. Yes, I know that human flight is possible and people are talking about flight for thousands of years and we did it, but we haven't done invisibility. We haven't done immortality. We haven't done being able to turn human be- anything you touch into a gold. There's just a list of things that the human imagination longs for or fears or fears like are golems coming after us. That's in, that's in ancient mythology. So again, this doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it means that there is just a human, a human desire to believe this kind of stuff, regardless of the facts. And I think, and that's my view is that it is driving a lot of super smart people to panic when we've actually got demonstrable problems of, you know, war orphans and malnutrition and deworming and malaria and housing and housing regulation and immigration. So I would say focus on the things, the, you know, the demonstrable dangers that we could, that, that we have right now, rather than talking about totally hypothetical ones where may seem to make sense to a few people, but ultimately does not make much sense to most people. And I think for good reason. Um, so yeah, so I did finally get to actually have lunch with Eliezer Yukowski and I asked him what to my mind were the hardest questions. No doubt he has a different take on the lunch, but my, I came back like saying, man, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. <laughs> yeah, he's really like when I just said, look, why not think that the uh, that the AI will ask him to to like twice the intelligence of a human rather than go off into the singularity? I didn't think he had any answer to that really. And I just said, look, everything else we've ever seen asymptoted. Why won't this asymptote? I think. Um, have you have you read Leading Fires or other uh, EA uh, think tanks work on AI t- t- timelines? So, so sorry, what about that? Uh, like, Have you read uh, any of the other work on AI timelines is what Prad you asked. Is there any other work on AI time, timelines? As, as in outside of Yudkowsky's, so mm-hmm. rethink priorities or, yeah. you know, that sort of I mean, thing. I like, like, on, like I, I, I will confess, since I'm not very worried about it and the initial people that I've talked to haven't really, can, haven't changed my mind, I haven't been inclined to push it, push it further. Um, I guess the main person I have talked to about this a lot is Robin Hansen. Uh, his views on this are so are so weird that it's uh, it's kind of hard to it's, it's hard to explain in just five or ten minutes. Uh, I mean, ultimately, yeah. he thinks of himself as not being worried, and I say, no, 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 you're like you're like as worried as almost everyone else. It's just that you have <laughs> such a strange standard of barely even caring about humanity <laughs> that you you consider the extinction of humanity like almost like like barely a drawback. Right? So. Uh, he he thinks he thinks of himself as being the much more sober person, but really, he's I think he's pretty crazy on this stuff too. Uh, I, I will say that while I think there has there is sometimes some AI concern on on EA Twitter, I think more broadly the movement, you know, there's a lot of people who still care a real lot about global poverty, and up until the present yes. day, as far as I can read the figures, it's still where most of the money has gone. So I just I really hear that when you say. actually have an EA conference, that's where the people that showed up worrying about global poverty leave completely baffled because they're like, no one wanted to talk about that. Everyone wanted to talk about robots. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, 
I mean, I looked. Through, I looked this, is, this is just what I've heard. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, there was there was some talk of that, but then I, I looked through that. Someone looked through the number of events, and like I, I you know, may, I wonder if it's just EAs on Twitter. But I, I you know, I, I would I would say more power to you in terms of uh, caring about global poverty, caring about immigration. Like absolutely, like I want to hear many more people care about that. So I, you know, parts of me certainly agree with you. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, no, <laughs> thanks a lot. Any other? questions nathan um well i don't know how long we're we're, we're going on for. Yeah. i don't want to keep going uh, too much, long much, so is there anything else brian that you wish to say to the audience let's see uh well so this uh, labor econ versus the world uh, essays on the world's greatest market this is the first in a series of eight books of my best essays See, the second such book is coming out tomorrow that one is called how evil are politicians essays on demagoguery <laughs> uh, these are all I, these I, are all I, available. I yep, all available for uh, you know, very low prices. Uh, Twelve bucks paperback, nine ninety nine for ebook on Amazon. Um, uh, to be to, you know, totally candid, you know, these are collections of my old essays, but the value that I've added is I've curated them. So I've gone through about three thousand posts that I wrote over seventeen years, and I picked out like about the best seven percent. And then I've organized them by topic. So I think that it's, uh, and I've also tried to do a you know. I've, each book has four parts, which sort of groups them by topic each one. And then I try to actually do an order that gives you a feel of climbing a mountain. So you get you, you have a feeling of accomplishment. Sort of, what's your hottest take on politicians? If the hottest take on Labour Econ was basically, you know, welfare improvements have largely been to do with markets, not about regulation. You know, if, if you know, there are three or four points like that, let's hear the hottest takes from the uh, from yeah. your politicians. I think my, my hottest take is, is that, the only way to really understand politicians well is to understand what psychologists call social desirability bias, which mm-hmm. is a fancy way of saying that when the truth sounds bad, people lie. Furthermore, when the lie is ubiquitous enough, people actually start to sincerely believe the lie, no matter even if it's absurd. What I say is once you understand this bias, you understand what's really going on in politics. It is not in, you know, any kind of intellectually serious effort to get to truth. Rather, it is a very, you know, there's a very skillful profession of people who just who really just sit around saying, how can I say things that'll make people like me? How can I say things that will make them, you know, that will make them vote for me, even if they aren't true, even if they have nothing to do with truth, even if they, you know, like, even if they're in this category, like not even true, not even wrong. It's just like, like just, just made up. And I say that you can understand not just the general picture, but it's a lot of details uh, for example, I've got an essay in the book called Monopolize the Pretty Lies, where I talk about, what does this tell us about censorship? Usually for censorship, we think that what a dictatorship does when they censor is they want to censor the truth. They want to go and stop people from saying true, ugly things about the dictatorship. And I say that's one thing that dictatorships are doing. But the main thing that they're actually trying to do is prevent a rival group from lying the way they lie in the opposite direction. The dictator goes and lies and says, this is the greatest country in the world. This is the greatest leader. He's sent by God. And what a dictator really fears isn't some cynic saying, he wasn't sent by God. How do we even know God exists? What they really fear is some other guy saying, no, I was sent by God. I'm the person sent by God. I speak for, for, the, for the divine. That's what makes uh, dictatorships pee their pants. And that's what they really want to want to want to murder you for, because they realize, well, just saying true things, honestly, that doesn't have that much appeal anyway. But someone else saying the kind of lies that I say to maintain my power and terrify people and make people have to lie in order to because they're afraid for their lives. If someone else starts getting in on that game, that's where I have to worry that my days are numbered. OK, 
So I say real censorship. Like censorship is primarily about censoring other people from lying the way it's in the same ridiculous way that the government currently lies. Have you heard of the Taiping Rebellion? Heard? Oh uh, yeah, the Taiping Rebellion. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, that's Jesus, his younger brother. The most uh, best example of that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like like an existing leader, he fears a new fanaticism. He doesn't fear some evidence-based people coming along and saying, well, it turns out that if we were to go and tweak agricultural policy in a certain way, you know, like you might kill those people too, but you don't have the same kind of sheer terror of the evidence of the evidence-based critic of your regime that you do of some rival fanatic. Uh, Brian, you'll be glad that the I am sent by God clip that you just read out, we're going to drop that before our next big, you know, <laughs> rave set. That and I are going to do that. It's going to be great, the, great. the last thing before yes. the drop. Everyone's yes. going to love it. I, I once did a, a uh, an Old Testament role playing game where I did record my voice as uh, as Yahweh with extra <laughs> voice filters. So, <you> know, <laughs> to to <laughs> chastise my stubborn sons. All right. So yes, I. Played in like, is that you, Brian? That sounds uh, yeah, that's me actually. <laughs> yeah, People say Brian Kaplan has a god complex, but completely wrong. Yeah. Entirely look, look wrong. I mean, I love you know, like I, I I like fantasy genres, science fiction, but like I do believe in keeping a a a very strong line between fiction and reality, and yeah, I think that is what is going on with a lot of Stranger EA is just taking fiction as being more revealing of reality than it really is. So, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, in my heart, like, like if I could do fiction and be really successful at it without having to uh, have years of, uh, year, year, years of failure, like, I'd be quite inclined to do that. It's definitely in my heart to go and just make up totally new stories. And I love doing that kind of thing. Imagination is such a big part of what I So I've done uh, fictional graphic novels. And then for games... I mean, I've done you know, like, like about 70 original stories for role-playing games. These are not short stories in a conventional sense because you know, basically I write a story about what's going to happen unless the players do something different, unless the, the players intervene to change the course of the story. Uh, so that's what, you know, so like it's the same kind of skills as fiction, but it's different because it's for a game where it's interactive and the players are able to go and change the story. Um, a, a question, this, sorry, you go, Praji. No, let, I'll, I'll let you speak, never mind. I, I was just saying, a question that has just jumped into my head that, that I've always wondered is, um, how does your wife feel about the conclusions of selfish reason to have more kids? As like, is she entirely convinced? Does she pick up some of the work that you consider to be sort of given the evidence unnecessary? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the question I've always mused about. Like, what, what's her opinion on, mm -hmm. on your child-rearing work? The thing that I know uh, with confidence is that originally she was very skeptical of the chapter on assisted reproductive technology. And she read that and she says, oh, wow, that's actually way more convincing than I was expecting. Uh, pretty good. All right. So that was where I actually have direct evidence that I changed her mind. In terms of actual child rearing, what I would say is that I, like, I'm just, you know, more, I'm, I'm probably just more opinionated than her and also willing to just do more work. So the reason why we homeschooled our, our kids is because of me. Uh, uh, she was willing to allow it. That was her main contribution uh, with considerable misgivings, but still, all right, fine in the end. Uh, so that, but again, I would still say she went and let me do something that was quite unusual for, uh, you know, again, if readers are puzzled by that, uh, I mean, I do have a blog post where I talk about it. Uh, like, why are, why are you homeschooling your kids? 
In terms of the general way raising them, I would say that we are quite different from most other families in our area because we really did have done very little to push them to do organized activities, very little pushing them in any direction, really. I think there, honestly, a lot of it is that my wife just has a really hard job. And so if I, you know, the only, like she just doesn't have time to push them very much. So she is very focused on her work. And then I um, you know, spend a lot more time deciding what the kids should do. And like every now, you know, sometimes she will, she'll, she'll have something that she really wants to do. Like she wants them all to get braces and all right, well, if you want to get braces, I don't think it's going to help them in the mate market all that much. And it hurts a lot, but she really, but you know, I'm not going to argue with her on that, but I would say that she is, you know, flexible, probably you know, much more just because of her life priorities than because of anything I've written. What you're, what you're telling me is I should bring more open borders copies to parties and get people who like them to marry yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, so that's something that actually works. Um, well, my richest friend did buy a thousand copies and he just has them available everywhere that he exists. So, <laughs> you know, they're at his office, they're at his, uh, you know, like he has multiple offices. Everywhere you go, there's a stack of these books that he's ready to hand out to people. Yeah, I did a book giveaway paid for by an anonymous friend, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, thank we, you. we did not struggle to get rid of them. I, they were vastly, vastly oversubscribed for people who yes. are interested in them. Yeah, I mean, so also like a little bit of that money, I think I would use to subsidize translations, especially in larger languages like Hindi and Mandarin. Actually, kind of uh, personally, I don't think we, we have one and a half minutes left. So personally, I don't think Hindi is good because most people who are, who are reading in Hindi already read in English. It's okay. Ah. Hmm. Well, all right. You, know, you, 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 may, you may be right. Although, you know, like just, you know, like just to get younger people reading it. So mm -hmm. isn't it likely that you know, like smart 10 year olds, their English wouldn't be good enough yet, but they can read it in Hindi? I will. I, my guess is no, because parents they'll, they'll really want their kids to read English. They, 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 they buy English books to read their kids. Just a, not because right. they care about open bar. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I mean, I still want in Hindi, but I'll retract it as a priority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I really loved having you on, and uh, thank you so much for coming. All right, thank you. It's been a great time. You say you say Pradyumna. Close enough. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pradyumna, and uh, great seeing you again, Nathan. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Right, and the new book is, or you know, the you know, the, the original new book was Labor Econ versus the World, and there's a new new one coming out tomorrow. Uh, How evil are politicians? And you can get both of them for twelve bucks each on Amazon. By the time we launch this, it will already be out. That's right.